Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. When we are talking of empire, it's easy to assume that empire is always something that happens out there, elsewhere. But one of the things that I think is crucial to acknowledge is that the seeds of empire begin at home and they're planted at home. And that's what I've tried to excavate. The British Empire was one of the most powerful entities in history, ruling over 25% of the world's population at its peak in 1920. It was in fact known as the empire upon which the sun never sets. The crown jewel of that empire was India, which Britain colonized until Indian independence in 1947. And therefore, we tend to think of the historic power dynamics between those two countries in that very colonial framework. But in fact, it wasn't always this way. At the time of early contacts in the Elizabethan and Jacobean era, that's the late 16th, early 17th century, the dynamics were very much reversed. India was a fabulously wealthy empire ruled by a Mughal emperor, and the English were little more than a small island, a group of commercial interlopers bent on growing the trade in spices and locked in a fierce battle with their Portuguese and Dutch rivals. My guest today is Nandini Das, a professor of early modern literature and culture at Exeter College at Oxford University and author of the book Courting India, which is an account of England's first ambassador at the time to the Mughal court. His name was Sir Thomas Rowe, and he was tasked with building a relationship with the Mughal emperor of the time, Jahangir, in order to build English trade with India. It's a fascinating book because it takes everything you thought you knew about the historic relationship between the two countries and completely turns it on its head. The English are poor and humble supplicants, whilst the Indian court is wealthy, powerful, and very much in charge of directing the shape of the relationship. The book won the British Academy Book Prize for Global Cultural Understanding. For those of you who don't know, the British Academy is the UK's National Institute for the Humanities and the Social Sciences. It was established in 1902, and it is now a fellowship of more than a thousand leading scholars spanning all disciplines across the humanities and social sciences, and it is a funding body for research projects across the United Kingdom. Some of its past members have included John Maynard Keynes, Isaiah Berlin, C.S. Lewis, and Henry Moore. This book prize was started 10 years ago and has rewarded winners of the highest caliber. If you're on the lookout for some great nonfiction focused on the humanities and social sciences, then their list of winners and this current winner are certainly worth looking at. In today's episode, Nandini and I talk about this first British embassy to India, how successful or not it really was, 
how it sowed the seeds for the British Empire in India and beyond, and we touch upon the current relationship between the two countries. And then finally, as always, we hear Nandini's favorite books and reading recommendations. When we think about India and England in past centuries, the relationship of the British Raj and and that colonial relationship, we tend to think of that power dynamic. Mm. But in your book, in Rose Time, in fact, it's very much inverted from what we know and expect. India was a huge superpower, a massive empire, and England was a sort of wonky kingdom. And there was a huge transition from the Tudors to the Stuarts. Tell us a little bit about that context, the power dynamics of that time. So when we think about the British Empire, the first thing that we think about, the images it brings up, tends to be beginning around the mid-18th century till the 19th, the height of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. But the period I'm talking about is about 200 years before that. Mm -hmm. That's when it starts. And it's 1614 when the first embassy is sent out. Mm -hmm. And that's why the power relationships are so very different Mm -hmm. in this period. If you think about where England is at this point, it's a small nation. Mm -hmm. Little island. Well, England tries to think of it as an island nation, but of course it shares that even that island with multiple (laughs) other nations. Other neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, Which it tends to conveniently forget Mm -hmm. quite often Mm -hmm. at this point. But it's also largely monolingual, single religion, Mm -hmm. separated from continental Europe. On the other hand, across the waters, the Mughal Empire has been around. It's a fairly new empire. We have got to remember that. Mm -hmm. Barber, the founder of the Mughal dynasty, comes to India in 1526. Mm -hmm. But by the point that we're talking about, it rules over about 1.24 million square miles and 150 million people. There's a moment in the East India Company records, for instance, where a merchant talks about the annual revenue of the then Mughal Emperor Jahangir, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, is a direct contemporary of James I. Mm And he says that Jahangir's annual personal revenue, and this is just for the emperor himself, mm-hmm. is the equivalent of 54 million sterling. That's, just to put it in on scale, that's about 100 times the total annual revenue of the English nation as a whole. Wow. Wow. So that's where the power difference lies yeah. between the two. Yeah. So at this point, this ambassador from this little kingdom shows up to this very large empire. And how would one assess this first ambassadorship? Because in your book, I felt that Thomas Roe came out looking like a bit of a bumbling envoy. He's not super competent. He's a bit petty. He's always nitpicking stuff. But in the broader scheme of things, one might argue, well, he might have laid the foundations for the British Raj uh, later on and that colonial relationship, which from the point of view of England is a successful one. So how do you assess Thomas Rowe? And and actually, I'll just add, the other day I was in the Houses of Parliament Mm. Having just read your book, and there's a huge mural. Yes, which is the one I end with. Yes. And I thought, oh my gosh. So there's some recognition here that Mm. this guy had delivered something for England. How do you see it? 
That's a really interesting question. You said, you know, Roe is perhaps bumbling and a bit petty. I think mm. you're being very generous. He's, <laughs> he can be terribly petty. Mm. But, you know, that's what makes him so human. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about diplomatic histories or history about encounters between nations, quite often we tend to talk in the abstract. Mm-hmm about big movements of mm-hmm. trade and economy and politics, all that kind of stuff. What makes Rose Embassy interesting, I think, is that we get such a human perspective mm-hmm. on that moment mm-hmm. of interaction mm-hmm. where individuals are yeah. involved. And very may- specific elements. Uh, Absolutely. I, I was struck, for example, of a a problem that Roe had, which was all the gifts that he brought oh, by goodness, the time yes. he arrived that were ruined. And <laughs> you think, God, who'd have thought of that? But of course, that's a huge issue. He's got to show up with big presents and they're they're ruined. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, Roe's embassy is an odd one because, as I say in Quoting India, on the one hand, it achieves pretty much next to nothing. He goes with the brief that he has to get a trading license. Mm. He takes it upon himself that he's going to make that into an exclusive trading license for the English and kick out the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. He achieves neither. (laughs) He gets a a middling kind of trading permit Mm -hmm. so that the English can stay at certain ports Mm -hmm. and stock up their goods. Mm -hmm. That's all. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's so bad that the East India Company won't send another embassy for about 80 years. Wow. Wow. But the interesting thing that happens is that by the 19th century, that story of the first embassy, precisely because it's the first embassy, and because Roe's account of the Mughal Empire is so important and so foundational, mm-hmm. it becomes absolutely part of the origin story that the British Empire wants for itself. Mm-hmm. And I think this is particularly what fascinated me, that so often when we talk about history, we seem to assume that we're talking about opaque events Mm -hmm. and facts. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at this embassy, you realize how much of history depends on storytelling. Storytelling and and humans doing human things. Absolutely. Yeah. So that moment you talk about in, you know, walking down the Houses of Parliament mm-hmm. and seeing Rose Embassy, that's part of a storytelling as well. Mm-hmm. And that storytelling, which I come to at the end of the book, comes at the end of the First World War. Mm-hmm. It's a, how shall I put it? It's a make Britain great again moment. Mm-hmm. Um, remember Thomas Rowe. And- exactly. You know, remember the signing of the Magna Carta mm-hmm. and Elizabeth sending off Drake and Raleigh to find new worlds for mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And by the way, also remember how we set up the British Empire. Mm-hmm. And Roe, really interestingly, in that image, is right front and center, mm. which he rarely is in the actual <laughs> historical <laughs> kind of context. So interesting. So there's a sense of mythologizing a little bit for the purposes of future political aims and, and imperial objectives. Absolutely. And Roe, to some extent, does that himself. He's so aware that his journal, which he has to write, as a that's part of his employment contract, mm. essentially, mm is going to be read by multiple readers mm-hmm. for multiple different users. Mm-hmm. So he's very, very aware of how he's presenting himself, how he's presenting the embassy, mm-hmm. the reception of the embassy mm-hmm. for all of those audiences, right from the king to the people who are actually paying him good money to go on the embassy, the East India Company, and his fashionable friends in London. Mm-hmm. 
We'll talk about those relationships in a minute. I just want to come back for one second to the emperor, Jahangir. Fascinating figure with whom Thomas Rowe develops a personal relationship of sorts. A bit of a tragic figure who's blighted by alcoholism, which is not a disease that I'd heard mentioned in relation to a lot of other super powerful rulers. What can you tell us about this ruler uh, and, and how that aspect of his life might have affected a lot of political decisions in, mm. in his empire? Well, Jahangir is the fourth Mughal emperor. Mm. So just again, to set up the timeline, his father, Akbar the Great, mm. who was really the person who stabilizes the Mughal dynasty mm. in northern India, is a direct contemporary of Elizabeth I. Mm. And Jahangir is a direct contemporary, almost year to year, mm. to James I of England. Mm. And they have some interesting resonances between the two. You mentioned their interest in alcohol mm -hmm. and struggles with it. Mm -hmm. Both of them shared that. They mm -hmm. both shared an equally violent dislike of tobacco, mm -hmm. which I found fascinating. The reason we know about Jahangir's struggles with alcohol is because he tells us about it himself mm -hmm. with astonishing honesty. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think makes him so extraordinary. Mm -hmm. It's very rare in any period and certainly very rare in the early modern period, mm -hmm. in this period, whether we're talking about Europe or elsewhere around the globe. Firstly, to get a first-hand account by a reigning sovereign, and secondly, to get such an honest first-hand yeah. account. Exposing vulnerability. And Absolutely. Yeah. So we get an extraordinary, almost ringside view mm -hmm. of Jahangir's thought processes, how he negotiates, his grief at his relationship with his son, Prince Khurram, who's also a central figure in my book. Khurram, of course, is later going to become Shah Jahan, who builds mm -hmm. the Taj Mahal. Mm -hmm. Jahangir's love for his 20th wife, mm -hmm. Nur Jahan, mm -hmm. who's by this point the reigning empress, mm -hmm. essentially. We get all of that. Mm -hmm. Of course, what we don't get is any reference to the English ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back to the English ambassador and his employment contract, as you put it, a bit of an awkward situation because what had transpired is that the Mughals didn't want to deal with a commercial envoy. And yet that's where the English had seemed to fail in the past, sending people really on trade terms. And they wanted a more political appointee, more prestigious, direct representative of the sovereign. So Thomas Rowe finds himself in a sort of two masters situation, King and East India Company. A lot of our listeners might not know a lot about the East India Company. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that is and how it evolved from that time onwards. Well, Usually, I think if we think about the East India Company, we tend to imagine this great monolith that kind of absolutely bulldozes across mm. huge swathes of South Asia mm. with violence mm. and with impecunity, essentially. Mm. The East India Company at this point, however, has hardly just got started. Mm. So they've got their trading license right at the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign. Mm. They've been trading for about... 14 years, mm -hmm. give or take, and they're raking in huge profits. Mm -hmm. It's not unusual for them to get about 150% profit on any voyage Gosh. to South Asia, mm -hmm. but they know they could do better. Mm -hmm. And they know that because the Portuguese and the Dutch do <laughs> do better than that. 
But here's the problem. So on the one hand, there's a political situation mm. that has been simmering in the background for ages. Mm. And that's to do with England's break with trading relationships with continental Europe. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, by this point, an old story. The Reformation, the break from the Catholic Church means that a lot of the trading contracts, the special relationships mm-hmm. have broken. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of Brexit of its time almost. To some extent, yes. Mm-hmm. And the problem for the English is that, you know, the one thing that the English were very good at, thanks to the terrible weather, mm-hmm. is that it grew great green grass. <laughs> and the sheep loved it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you had an excellent wool industry. Mm-hmm. Till this point, that wool could have been sold to continental Europe. Mm. But now for the last, by this point where we are talking about in early 1700s, for the last 15 odd years, Mm. the English wool market has been drying up. So repeatedly in when merchants talk about things, you see them worrying about our vent for English wool. And what do you do when your European continental market has dried out? Well, look for trade deals in the global south. And that's what they're doing. But the problem is that the Mughal Empire just is not ready to listen to what they would see as mere merchants. Mm -hmm. It's far beneath this huge empire's dignity Mm -hmm. to deal with random merchants from a little island they haven't heard of Mm -hmm. and give them trading permits. Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, if you think about global trade at this point, The leaders in that trading world are the three huge Islamic empires, Mm -hmm. the Ottomans Mm -hmm. in Istanbul, Mm -hmm. the Safavids Mm -hmm. or the Persians Mm -hmm. in Isfahan, and the Mughals Mm -hmm. in India. The Mughals come second after Ming China Mm -hmm. in terms of controlling global trade Mm -hmm. and global annual revenues. Mm -hmm. So they're not giving the English any time of the day. And the English merchants have been petitioning their leaders, the state, Mm -hmm. for ages. This is not going to come as a surprise to anyone who has ever read newspapers about trade dealings and how those operate, that there's always a mismatch, right, Mm -hmm. between what the state wants and what trade Mm -hmm. kind of powers want. But by 1614, that comes to a crunch point because the English merchants realize that the Dutch are really ready to make their move on India. They already know that they've kind of lost out to the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. Now to lose out against the Dutch, Mm -hmm. another fellow Protestant Mm -hmm. nation? It's not good. It's not good. Mm -hmm. So now they're ready to go out on a limb. And the way they convince James I, who is terribly Mm cash-strapped at this point, is by saying, look, just rubber stamp it. Mm -hmm. We'll fund it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about the money. So that's why Roe finds himself in that position where Mm -hmm. he is both a business agent, a trade Mm -hmm. agent, Mm -hmm. and a representative of the state. Mm -hmm. And that's a really tricky position for him. What might have been some of the conflicts in between those two positions? What were some of the major elements where the East India Company and James I might have diverged in terms of approach or strategy to dealing with the Mughal Empire? Well, it boils down to something very, very basic. The East India Company was primarily interested in, frankly, is money. Of course. Well, James is quite interested in money, let's admit (laughs) that. But he's also interested in prestige. Mm -hmm. Remember, when James comes to the throne, he takes enormous pride in kind of positing himself as the new peacemaker Mm -hmm. of Europe. Mm -hmm. He's the new Augustus Caesar. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when he writes a letter of instruction to Rome, 
It's a fascinating letter because he says, you've been appointed, deal with all the trade. And by the way, convince the Mughal emperor, who's one of the greatest emperors of the world, that I'm quite powerful too. (laughs) And not only that, despite being so powerful, my subjects love me Mm -hmm. everywhere. So there's a mismatch in the messages that Roe has to give out. There's a mismatch in what he needs to achieve. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for him to negotiate that because on the one hand, if he sticks on his English pride, his kind of representation of the state, Mm -hmm. it's not particularly good in terms of negotiating those trade deals and Mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the sources that you use to research the book, one being Thomas Rowe's diary, records of the East India Company. How might those sources have converged and where might you have found divergences in accounts that you would have to reconcile some way or another? You mentioned Rowe's diary or journal, Mm -hmm. and that's part of this huge sea of paperwork that Mm -hmm. the East India Company generates. Mm -hmm. The East India Company loved its paperwork. Mm-hmm. It loved its bureaucracy. Good Whitehall bureaucrats of absolutely of yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. If anyone among your listeners has ever filed an expense report, <laughs> let them know that future historians will be very grateful, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. I am for every bit, every pound and pence that Roe has to justify wow. spending. Wow, we have all of that, mm-hmm. or most of that. We have Roe's journal because that was part again of the understanding that the East India Company had Mm -hmm. with most of its high-ranking employees. Mm -hmm. And sorry, where are these records today? Um, Most of them are in either the National Archives Mm -hmm. in London, in Mm -hmm. Kew, Mm -hmm. or in the East India offices, records of the East India office Mm -hmm. at the British Library. And we have part of Rose Journal among those records, The second part, unfortunately, is lost, but thankfully not before it was edited Mm -hmm. by a 17th century editor. So we've got sections of the second part. Mm -hmm. Usually when we talk about this very early stage, that's where the buck stops, essentially, Mm -hmm. with the East India Company records. Mm -hmm. But when I started writing Courting India, I was really conscious of the need to widen that lens Mm -hmm. because Roe wasn't operating in a vacuum. Neither was the East India Company. So I was really particularly interested in trying to dig out what and how other people perceived Mm -hmm. that embassy. And that meant looking at Portuguese records, looking at Dutch letters of the Dutch East India Company. It also meant looking at Mughal records Mm -hmm. and other Indian records. Mm -hmm. The Mughal... Empire, you could say, loved its documentation and paperwork almost as much as the East India Company, (laughs) but not so much of that survives. However, what does survive and what I've used quite heavily is Jahangir's own memoirs, Mm -hmm. the Jahangir Nama. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think I was astonishingly lucky. It's very rare when you're writing about a historical event. Mm to get such detailed records yeah. from two different Did that surprise you? Or when you set out to write the book, did you think to yourself, there are going to be plenty of sources, I've got plenty yeah. of material, or what were your expectations with regard to the research process? Yeah. Well, look, I started working really on the research about 10, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. not with a view to writing this book. Mm-hmm. So I knew roughly where I was going. Mm-hmm. But what really did astonish me is how often you can 
almost juxtapose Rose Journal and the Jahangirnama side by side mm-hmm. and track the same event, mm-hmm. not only day by day, sometimes hour by hour, and see exactly the same events mm-hmm. unfolding from two different perspectives. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes if you go to fairgrounds or museums, you see these odd old Victorian stereoscopes. Mm-hmm. Now, those things where you put your eyes in and there are two different slides mm-hmm. for your left and right eye, yeah. and they kind of overlay to give you mm-hmm. a 3D image. Mm-hmm. I can only describe the the effect of looking at these two texts yeah. by comparing it to that kind of a Victorian stereoscope. Yeah. Suddenly, details become much more clearer. Details about what happens, but also about what doesn't get recorded. Mm-hmm. I would expect the journals of Thomas Rowe to place him squarely at the center of all these events. And Jahangir's journal probably, does it even mention him often or at all? Or I'm afraid not. Not at all. So, <laughs> you know, there are frequent moments in Rowe's journal where he writes pages, absolute pages, <laughs> about every tiny detail mm-hmm. of an exchange mm-hmm. with the emperor mm-hmm. at the public darbar or mm-hmm. kind of um, audience hall. You look at Jahangir's journal for the mm-hmm. same day. Mm-hmm. He describes the same darbar mm-hmm. in great detail. Mm-hmm. He talks about his pet cranes and their nesting habits. Wow. He talks about bees landing on lotus flowers no mention of the English ambassador. Wow. So it gives you a sense of the Mughal sense of the world, but Mm. also the relative unimportance Mm. of the English at the Mughal Mm. court Mm. at this point. What was your intention when you decided to write this book? Was it to showcase that unique context or the origin point? What were you thinking as the ultimate objective of this book? That's a big question, I think. My academic work, research on Roe, mm. it was part, very much part of my interest in cross-cultural encounters, mm. particularly in the way we engage with new places. Mm. How do we respond to a place that we do not know? What frames that response? And How does that response unfold Mm. in the future? And one of the arguments that even in my earliest work on Roe, looking at those records helped to illuminate is how much of our response to a new place is framed by expectations that are not produced in that place, Mm -hmm. but are carried with us from Mm -hmm. home through books we've read, through stories we've heard, through assumptions and expectations we might have. For me, writing this book gave me a significantly larger canvas in which I could explore that. And that's partly why for readers who have read the book, you'll see that there's an oscillation between the home and the world, in a sense, between what was going on at the Stuart Court, James Mm -hmm. I's Court, Mm -hmm. and in London, and what was going on in India, Mm -hmm. but also set against that wider global canvas Mm -hmm. where the English and the Dutch and the Portuguese Mm -hmm. were fighting it out. Absolutely. They were fighting it out in the Spice Islands of Indonesia. Mm -hmm. They were fighting it out in North America and in South America Mm -hmm. in various ways. Mm -hmm. For the fabulous profits of these spices and peppers and these goods. Your book recently won the British Academy Prize for Global Cultural Understanding. In the end, what do you hope your readers will take away from this book in terms of better global cultural understanding? 
Well, certainly a more detailed or a fuller understanding, a more complete understanding of the origins of English interaction mm. with South Asia. Is that, um, is that a synonym for imperialism? Not only imperialism, mm. but on cultural, imaginative, mm. and political and economic terms. Mm. It includes, and of course, colonial violence is front and center mm. within that. And you see that in a lot of the discussions that Roe gets into, where seeds of that are sown. Mm in terms of what he talks about, in terms of Indian intractability, mm-hmm. corruption, lack of civility, of the Protestant duty to civilize other countries. Mm-hmm. He uses that almost as a kind of armor against the Mughal magnificence that he sees. So there's a long shadow so of that So those there. themes that were so important in developing imperialistic attitudes and policies, those were already in existence at the time of Thomas Rowe. And it seems from what you're saying, almost before then, this sort of Protestant superiority to intractability and corruption. Well, they're being formed in this period. Mm -hmm. And they're being formed because the sense of Protestant identity, Protestant English identity is being formed in response to England's global encounters. Mm -hmm. But that's only part of what I would like audiences or readers to take away, I think, Mm -hmm. from quoting India. The other part of it is that bigger question of how cross-cultural encounters take place, Mm -hmm. I think. And I'm particularly fascinated, I think Rose's account is particularly good at showing how an encounter is never something that happens in a vacuum. There's a huge backdrop, whether you're conscious of it or not. Mm-hmm. Roe took with him memories of what India and what Asia meant, mm-hmm. which he inherited from his schoolroom learning mm-hmm. of Latin and Greek authors, which mm-hmm. he inherited from the plays he saw in London theatres, like Christopher Marlowe's Tamburlaine. Mm-hmm. And he takes that lens with him when he goes to India. Mm-hmm. He also takes the lens of Stuart politics. Mm-hmm. So when he looks at the power of Nur Jahan, mm-hmm. the empress of India, mm-hmm. Jahangir's favorite wife, he is seeing it to some extent through Stuart paranoia mm-hmm. about women's power. Mm-hmm. He's seeing it through the lens of James I's own resistance mm-hmm. to the influence of Anna of Denmark. Mm-hmm. And that's very easy to forget sometimes when we are talking of empire. It's easy to assume that empire is always something that happens out there, Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I think is crucial to acknowledge is that the seeds of empire begin at home and they're planted at home. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've tried to excavate. Mm -hmm. The third thing I think which is as important is that Occasionally in Rose Embassy, he's struggling with his own ill health, with the problem of being persistently cash-strapped with Mughal kind of bureaucracy. He's desperately trying to present an image of Protestant English superiority Mm -hmm. and being scathing about the Indians, Mm -hmm. the Indian figures he comes across. Mm But in the middle of that, there are glimpses of genuine human engagement with other figures, mm-hmm. whether it is with his translator, Jadu, or with a visiting Persian nobleman, mm-hmm. or with Emperor Jahangir himself. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm equally fascinated by those human engagements. Mm -hmm. And that inner transformation they might have initiated inside him. He must have come back hopefully somewhat changed in his attitudes, or do you think he was a little bit impervious to... Well, a long time after the first English embassy, almost at the end of his diplomatic career, Roe is called back to Parliament for a final time. Mm -hmm. And this is just before civil war begins. This is the last Parliament that is summoned by Charles I. Uh So Roe by them is a well-known name. Mm -hmm. So he's called back to advise on how the king might recoup his finances Mm -hmm. and pull England back from the brink Mm -hmm. of what everyone is certain is going to be sure destruction Mm -hmm. on both sides Mm -hmm. of the question. And Rowe's advice at that point is that Charles could do no better than follow the example of the Mughal emperor Mm -hmm. in opening up English market to traders and artisans of all faiths Mm -hmm. And that I find particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. It's also particularly interesting because Roe is so resistant to that diversity. Mm -hmm. To him, it's unsettling and disconcerting when he is in India. 40 years later, he can look back on that and it in a way percolates into his consciousness Mm -hmm. as a political stance. Mm -hmm. And that is I think, particularly crucial in terms of cross-cultural engagements that quite often encounters not only start a long time before they actually occur, but they continue a long time after they end. So that spectrum of the event is what I find interesting. Fascinating. In terms of global cultural understanding, and I realize this is not your area of expertise, but I'd be curious to fast forward to the present day and get some of your views on how you see the contemporary relationship between the UK and India. How have you seen it evolve in the recent past and and what factors that might be connected to your book do you see driving that relationship even today, if any? Interestingly, I think if you look at news reports, Mm -hmm. the phrase courting India comes up quite often, Mm -hmm. increasingly so at the moment. And they're not, alas, talking about my book. (laughs) (laughs) So there is obviously an interest at the moment Mm -hmm. in India's relationship Mm -hmm. with other political states Mm -hmm. within Europe and beyond about the weight that South Asian nations and particularly India currently holds Mm -hmm. in terms of trade and political negotiations. Mm -hmm. What is also, I think, particularly interesting is how often those reports fall back on cultural memories, assumptions, and expectations about what India means Mm -hmm. and what India is. Mm -hmm. And that I find particularly fascinating. Mm -hmm. When we're talking or commenting on history unfolding in the present, quite often it's very tempting to simplify the history as it unfolded in the past. And to I think go back to some key markers in, of past historical and, eras. And key characteristics of what a country means, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be careful about simplifying perhaps that too far or assuming that a past narrative that we hold as known applies in the present. Mm-hmm. 
because political situations, cultural situations move very, very fast mm. at the moment. We're going to move now to our quick questions where we probe a little bit your literary tastes and recommendations and hear uh, what you've been enjoying. My first question in that section is always the same, which is what's your favorite book that I've never heard of? My favorite book that you have probably never heard of is an account by an utterly idiosyncratic traveler mm -hmm. to India who arrives in India roughly at the same time as Thomas Rowe, mm -hmm. is also a Thomas, a Tom, mm -hmm. called Thomas Coriat. And it's a little book, a tiny pamphlet, Coriat's greetings to his friends from the Mughal court. He is referred to in your book, Courting he India. Is he's, absolutely. A, he's a sort of traveling jokester kind He of is an amazing figure. He mm -hmm. is perhaps the first English tourist, you mm -hmm. could say, but also the first, how shall I put it, Challenge-led celebrity. Mm -hmm. You know the way we now have all these media programs mm -hmm. about people going on challenges. Yeah, I'm a celebrity, get me out of exactly. here. Nigel Farage is putting his head in snakes right now. Well, for Coriat, it's more of an I'm a celebrity, get me there. Get me there. <laughs> um, so he creates his name by walking his way across Europe and mm -hmm. writing a pamphlet about it. Mm -hmm. And his way of raising money was to do what were called wager travels. So mm -hmm. you made a bet. Mm -hmm. You bet someone else or a group of other people that you would be able to, say, walk or hop or whatever it might be from A to B. And that's how he makes his name. When Roe arrives in India, Koryat has also arrived in India. He's mm -hmm. walked his way across uh, the best part of um, the trade route across Persia. My gosh. And he has arrived at the Mughal court. And it's an absolutely fascinating narrative. He's such a vibrant voice mm -hmm. and utterly compelling mm -hmm. and so different from Roe's very cultured, civilized, mm -hmm. measured mm -hmm. account of things. And I absolutely love it to pieces. Fascinating recommendation. Thank you. And and very, I love how it's relevant to your own book. That's brilliant. What's the best book that you've read in the last 12 months? Okay. It's a book that has been hugely influential, I think, in the way I think about history. Mm -hmm. And the reason I reread it is because the writer, a very eminent historian, Natalie Zeman Davis, unfortunately, died very recently. Oh. And it's a book about the first account of Africa written by an African, mm -hmm. kidnapped and brought over to Europe and presented to the Pope at the Vatican wow. as a part payment of the kidnapper's sins, mm -hmm. essentially, mm -hmm. forgiveness of the kidnapper's sins. So it's a biography of this man, Leo Africanus. Mm -hmm. Every time I read Natalie Zeman Davis's account of Leo Africanus, I'm astonished by the sheer humanity with which she approaches the subject. What era would Leo Africanus? Um, it's an early modern book, so it's um, early 16th century. Mm. But one of the things that any of us, any researchers working on the early modern period, and particularly if you're interested in non-European presence mm -hmm. that we come across, is the problem of fragmentation. Mm -hmm. you know, lives glimmer up in the records occasionally, and mm -hmm. then they disappear. Mm -hmm. You get the beginning of a life, but not the end, or vice mm -hmm. versa. Mm -hmm. So how do you tell those stories? Mm -hmm. And Natalie Zeman Davis's 
account of John Lear Africanus does this so wonderfully by creating this huge backdrop against which we can see how Africanus, this man who loses his name, loses his identity, loses his language to write in Latin later on, becomes who he is, the product of two worlds. And it's been hugely influential for me. What book would you take to a desert island? If I was happy to stay there on a desert island, I would want it to be a substantial tome that I could read through the decades I stay and Mm -hmm. wither. Mm -hmm. I would take something suitably early modern. I would take a book that every East India Company ship was asked to take carry with them Mm -hmm. on their first voyages. And it's called The Principal Navigations, Voyages and Discoveries of the English Nation. Mm -hmm. It's edited by a man called Richard Hacklett. Mm -hmm. It's quite handy because you can use it as a doorstop and wait as well. It's three huge volumes. Wow. But last me quite a few years. It would. And also good for a workout. Absolutely. Good bit of lifting. What is a book that has changed your mind? When I was halfway through writing about Thomas Rowe, not quoting India, an earlier kind of scholarly article, Mm -hmm. I read for the first time an academic series of three lectures by a historian called Sanjay Subramaniam. Mm -hmm. And it's called Three Ways of Being Alien. Mm -hmm. And it, in a way, I could say, recalibrated my view of engagements between Asia and Europe. It gives you a whole different perspective Mm. on the way those encounters went, the way people engaged. Mm. And more importantly, I think, it gives you a wholly different perspective on how to engage with the figures who were caught in between cultures. Mm. I think that would be the one I'd pick. Last question. What are your future projects? What are you working on? Are there other books or are you basking in the glory of the British Academy Prize? What have you got lined up uh, literarily? There are always other books and other plans, inevitably. But at the moment, I'm working on, in some ways, you could say a Mm follow-up to Courting India. It's a new history of Tudor and Stuart England, Mm -hmm. but seen from the perspective of people moving into and out of the country, rather than a history as you know, Shakespeare's Richard II would have said of sad stories of the deaths of kings. Mm -hmm. It's a collection of lives of Mm -hmm. people who um, readers may not have heard of, but who helped to transform England into the nation it was to become. And some of them are English who go to other distant lands, people like Roe, but Roe doesn't feature in this particular book. And others are people who move either voluntarily or involuntarily to England Mm. and help to transform the nation from the inside. And it's called This Little World. So that's going to be out, hopefully, if all goes to plan in 2025. Well, we'll look out for that. In the meantime, that's all we have time for today. Professor Nandini Das, thank you so much for your time. It was fascinating to talk to you about your book, Courting India, which recently won the British Academy Prize for Global Cultural Understanding. What a pleasure it was to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. It was a real pleasure. 
And now for a quick recap of the books that Nandini mentioned during the interview. Her favorite book that I've never heard of was Coriat's Crudities by Thomas Coriat, published in 1611. He was one of the first travelers and quote-unquote tourists who traveled around the world and gave entertaining accounts of these travels, including to India. And his gripping account of that country contrasts with the more dour account of Sir Thomas Rowe. Her favorite book of the last 12 months was Leo Africanus Discovers Comedy, Theater and Poetry Across the Mediterranean by the historian Natalie Zimon Davis, published in 2021. It's about one of the first African men to write an autobiography featuring his kidnapping to Europe in the early 16th century. The book that she would take to a desert island was The Principal Navigations, Voyages, and Discoveries of the English Nation by Richard Hakluyt, published in 1589, which was essentially a recap of all early seafaring expeditions by navigators in order to accumulate the lessons of these adventures for future explorations. And it was obligatory reading for any ship of the East India Company. And finally, the book that changed her mind was Three Ways to Be Alien by Sanjay Subramanyam, published in 2011. And it's a book based on lectures about three travelers in the early modern period. And it helped to recalibrate her view about engagements between Europe and Asia. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at Lit with Charles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.